afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is November 16th, 2015, and this is episode number 91. And as usual, I am the host, William Hill, and today we have um, Dr. Piper in the in studio to um, talk about the... Um, to to talk about faith and practice, to answer questions from the listeners, and and, and um, so we have a lot of questions. So we're going to jump right into them um, post haste. So here they come. All right, let's open with prayer, Bill. Oh yeah, that's that's correct. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this recent Lord's Day, and how you met with us. We thank you for your kingdom that will come into the ends of the earth. We thank you for modern technology, Lord, and how you use it to benefit your church. We pray you'll bless this program, both those who listen live today and those who will listen to the recording later, that you will make it effective and useful in the lives of your people and for the advancement of the gospel. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, our first question uh, today comes in from Eric. He writes in from Long Island, New York, and um, uh, due to the length of the question, I'm going to have Dr. Piper simply summarize the question and then um, answer it um, uh, for Eric as well as uh, you, the listener. So, Dr. Piper, it is all yours. Good. Thank you, Eric. In fact, I'm going to be up at Long Island uh, this uh, weekend. I'll be at the uh, Presbytery of Connecticut and Southern New York. Then I'll be preaching at the OP Church in Queens, but at uh, Sunday night, I'll be at a joint service there at Franklin Square, and it'd be good if I could meet you. Well, Eric's question is a very important question, and I, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to give it complete justice. I have discussed this some with Dr. Curto, our apologetics professor, and actually tried to get him to come in and answer the question, but he had a conflict at this particular time. Eric's question is based on a lecture he heard on at the Reform Forum 2014 conference by Dr. Oliphant, and the matter was Van Til and Common Grace, and Van Til's conception then of paradox and reasons for it. Van Til uses language that he is unashamedly anthropomorphic, like the scriptures. Now, what is meant by anthropomorphic is that uh, God uses uh, uh, things of human nature to describe himself. So he's a spirit, but he speaks of his eyes or his feet or his fingers. And what he's doing, he's there's something that God does as a pure spirit that we do through these uh, physical senses and body parts. And so God speaks in that way uh, so that we can understand uh, what it is that he is doing. We also apply the phrase anthropomorphic, or some would call it anthropopapisms or papisms, and that is God uses human passions to describe himself. The Confession of Faith says that God has not passions, and I think we've discussed that on a previous faith and practice And what I understand that to mean is that God doesn't have emotions like our emotions, because our emotions are reactive. They they imply an uh, immutability of character. God's immutable, and God never reacts. He always proacts. But because we are in the image of God, just as physical things help us to understand how God operates, he uses uh, these various uh, emotional 
aspects of our being that he created in us as his image bearers. And he's telling us that there's something in him like that. So if I love in a proper manner, and the Bible tells me that God loves, then there's something in God uh, that is an act of love that's not a passion, it's not changeable, but he really does love me. He really does love sinners. He really is jealous. He really is angry. And we have to understand that he is these things in a pure and spiritual, unchangeable being. But there are things in an act of his will that are actually better than our human emotions. Now, that's the background. So, according to uh, what Eric has uh, written here, and I've not listened to the lecture, didn't have time to look it up, but um, it seems that Oliphant is saying that Van Til is saying that, that the anthropomorphic is the ideal in doing theology. In other words, we must uh, do anthropomorphic theology. And this is what, at least according to uh, what you've said here, Eric, and uh, some others, is what is called a, um, a paradox, or in another lecture, a limiting concept so that two seemingly contradictory doctrines of Scripture are propagated without an attempt to remove the paradox. Now, that's the background. Eric's question then is, if we do anthropomorphic theology, is this not irrational? And does it not call, uh, would it not threaten uh, some of the um, uh, basic Reformation theology about God and salvation and the Incarnation as it is summarized, for example, in the Confession of Faith. And I would say the way that Eric has described this anthropomorphic theology, yes. Uh, the Confession itself teaches us that Scripture interprets Scripture, that God is not irrational. He is the perfect embodiment of rationality, uh, and thus, as we bear his image, we reflect him in rationality and logic as well as in other areas. So I think it's our duty when God uses an anthropomorphism to interpret Scripture, but to come to um, biblical constructs that are being expressed by the anthropomorphism. Now, we must take the analogy when the Bible talks about God's eyes roaming about, roving about the earth. Well, he's omniscient, and we don't need to, uh, to state that in any uh, analogical or anthropomorphic way. Uh, we can assert that the figure teaches us the reality that God sees and knows all things simultaneously. So we come to uh, uh, rational, objective statements about God. Now, I'm in no way suggesting that this is not what uh, Dr. Van Til would say, and it surely I know that this is that uh, Dr. Oliphant would agree with me on this. So let's don't confuse anthropomorphic with developing an anthropomorphic theology. I don't think we need or want an anthropomorphic theology. And so, Eric, I hope this helps. I'll be glad for you to follow up with another question. Uh, I'll learn from it as well. So thank you. Great, Eric. Thank you for the question. I do appreciate you listening to the program. And, um, and um, 
writing in um, writing into the program as well. Our next question comes from. Um, I'm sorry, I'm I'm just trying to track here in my software where we are. I've lost track, but okay, here we are. I've got it. Um, next question comes in from Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, the question is: As the wife of a seminary student preparing for the ministry. I'm often privy uh, to conversations my husband has with other men. I find myself interested in learning more about what is being discussed. This has led me to two questions. First, how does a woman who is often busy with homemaking tasks and sometimes working outside the home decide exactly what to read to grow spiritually and meaningfully? Secondly, which women should be reading more theologically-based books, only those who have an interest in doing so, or should every Christian woman, woman endeavor to do this? Thank you for your input on a subject which I have pondered over the years. Well, thank you uh, very much uh, for what I think is a, an excellent uh, question. Uh, I hope your husband will get this right as well. Um, the first part of your question is that uh, how does a woman who's busy with homemaking and oftentimes working outside the home, uh, decide exactly what to do, what to read to grow spiritually and meaningfully? Well, most of my answer you would already know, and I know you're doing, and, and the first is you must be uh, in regular Bible study daily. And I recommend you do that with a good help, like my wife has for years now used Matthew Henry. Hmm. So she reads the scripture, and then she consults Matthew Henry on that. And the beauty of Matthew Henry is that exegetically, he's usually right on target, but he's also, uh, he deals with the heart. There's a lot of application in Matthew Henry's uh, comments. And so some kind of practice like that. And then, um, I think you should be reading regularly in the Confession of Faith catechisms and perhaps then periodically uh, or in your devotions or whatever a um, commentary on one or the other or uh, a couple of books. Uh, you know, My book, uh, Studies in Westminster Confession, takes you through 26 chapters dealing with the doctrines and practices of the Confession of Faith. We have the new uh, Chad Van Dixhorn book that we're using here in our introduction to uh, Reformed Theology. So something basic like that, that you're continuing to uh, immerse yourself. <laughs> and then uh, at that point, interest and needs for your development, uh, the Puritan paperbacks are excellent uh, books that will help you uh, develop Christian experience and applying doctrine in the right areas. And in the busyness, then, you know, really the best time for that is to set aside some time on Sunday afternoon. And I encourage uh, husbands, even when they're preaching, to uh, give their wives a break, uh, cover with the children or in the kitchen or whatever, so uh, the wife can have a, a more uh, Sabbath experience there and, and get some rest and do some of that reading. So I think that's the way to build the reading into your life, in your devotions, and then in that. Now, another good thing is to read a book with your husband and just y'all slowly work through a book uh, together. Now, as to the second, um, which women should be reading more theologically based books? Well, obviously, some women will be more attracted to uh, th uh, more serious theological books than others. 
But again, and I, I said this in a recent uh, message to the Ladies' Fellowship, um, you need to keep yourself a companion to your husband, and that not only means physically attractive and things like that, but mentally. Mm. And so to the degree that uh, your husband is in these things, I think it's good for a woman to show interest in uh, in theology, uh, both in uh, – systematic theology, practical theology, again, these books on Christian experience. So, again, that's the advantage of reading the book together. Uh, some women will be, actually do more and also depends on the time of life. With little children, you're going to do much less. Uh, as the children are gone, you'll be able to do much more. And the big thing is not to feel guilty. You don't get done what you want to do, but to do what you can in God's providence and, of course, discipline of your life is very important with respect to that as well. So I hope this helps. Um, I see you pretty often, so you can always follow up with another question, or you can get another book and write in. <laughs> very good. Thank you for Just the question. Just don't let your husband buy the book. Make sure you pick out one you want. Maybe your husband has a really large library. Well, thank you for the question. <laughs> anyway, we're going to move on <laughs> um, to Samuel Lago. He writes in from Santiago, Chile. Um, and a really good question, and Dr. Pipe is going to have to help me with the um, with the Spanish there. I think uh, you're more familiar with that than I am. It's, but, the, uh, it's the Presbyterian Church in America of Chile. Okay, there you go. Well, he writes in, first of all, I want to congratulate you for an excellent show. It is edifying, challenging, and, and definitely makes one think, so we appreciate it. And we're glad to have listeners in South America. Absolutely, appreciate the encouraging words. But uh, this uh, individual writes in, he's a pastor in Chile and as a pres- uh, in, in, in involved in a presbytery there uh, that was started by the Mission to the World missionaries in Chile. We've adopted a book of church order, which is basically a Spanish translation of the PCA book of church order. We'd love to hear some thoughts on the old debate within Presbyterianism on two or three offices. The BCO speaks only of two offices. However, in practice, I don't see that it manages to avoid the three office position as there is a clear distinction at the end of the day between ruling elder and teaching elder. This is seen in things like, one, the fact that a ruling elder that passes his teaching elder ordination exam is ordained into that position, not simply installed into a new function of the same office. Two, the fact that a teaching elder is not a member of the local church but a ruling elder is the authority of the teaching elder to administer the sacraments and a few other examples. What has been the historic development of this debate? Does Dr. Pepper think that one position or another is more beneficial or helpful or biblical? I am genuinely curious and not asking these questions simply to start stir things up. So, Dr. Piper, over to you on this one. Very good. Well, Samuel, thank you. This is an issue that I do have some passion about, and I'm glad for the opportunity to speak about it. Let's do some quick background. Uh, Samuel has used the language of two or three office. The three office view, which basically in, the, in America developed at Princeton Seminary, uh, is that uh, there are uh, ministers, and this was also be the continental reformed position. There are ministers, uh, there are uh, ruling elders, and there are deacons. And there are three then distinct offices. Now, within that position, there'll be some that would see that the ruling elder basically only participates in church courts, and even 
uh, outside of the session level have said that, for example, a ruling elder is not necessary for a quorum to set aside a minister, to ordain a minister to the gospel. And the more, uh, I don't want to, I can't think of a better word than radical, but the extreme of this view is that ruling elders would not take part in pastoral care or in any participation in leading the worship service. Now, on the other extreme is that which you are calling to office, and to office as it is advocated, say, in most of our soteriologically reformed churches, to Baptist churches, uh, and uh, what was the man? Strunk uh, has written pretty much the classic modern book on this position, and that is there is the office of elder and the office of deacon, and that uh, all elders have all the same functions, though some by training and gifts might do more of the preaching and teaching that all uh, do have exactly the same office. Now, what you are reading in the PCA book of church order, the Presbyterian Church in America translated into your Spanish book of church order, is what has effectively been called the two-and-a-half office view. This was developed by men like Thornwell and Dabney and others in um, pushing back against the Princeton uh, three-office view. And you can find very good discussions of this, for example, in Thornwell. I think it's volume four, his works on ecclesiology. Now, this office, and you've rightly hit two of the important issues, um, but let me give you one backup one, and that is that uh, all elders are ordained to the ruling office in the church. So all teaching elders and ruling elders are ruling elders and share then in all of the rule of the church. That's why we call it a two-and-a-half office view. The function of preaching is a separate function from the office of rule. The primary text uh, for that is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Where Paul says in verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially, or you could translate that, namely, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So within the office of ruling, there's this other function, uh, and that is of preaching and teaching. And that function is one that brings uh, honorarium. In other words, this is the man that makes his living by the gospel. Now, Paul, who would see himself as a elder in the church, but also clearly says in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, uh, I have been appointed as an apostle and a preacher. And he actually puts it, highlights the importance of preacher as an office. And that's the word kerux connected to the Greek word caruso for preaching. And so with these and other background um, passages, it's our conviction that uh, there is a separate ordination to an exclusive function. And that the preaching of the gospel 
is to be the function of the kerux, the herald, whose Christ is set aside through the church to that office. And so the teaching elder shares the office of rule with the ruling elder, which I think consists as well of the pastoral oversight of the church and all the men participating uh, in that and the ruling elders participating in leading in prayer and reading scripture in particular in corporate worship. But preaching, which is a distinctly authoritative act, demands another ordination. So that's why. So just yesterday, I had the privilege of preaching at a little church in uh, North Carolina where Bill Hill is the student uh, supply, the student pastor there, but they've also elected him as a ruling elder. Now, he's, he's not ordained to preach yet, but he is doing the pulpit work there. Lord willing, it's quite possible. Well, if, Lord willing, it will happen. Lord willing, he will go there uh, when he graduates this summer and uh, be ordained as their pastor. But uh, right now, he was installed. He's already been ordained a ruling elder. He was installed as a ruling elder in that church. They elected him unanimously. Uh, but uh, if and when they call him to be their pastor, then he will receive an ordination to the office of preaching. And so because it is a separate function. One of the another proof texts on that, Paul says, then with respect to the sacraments, that I am a steward of the mysteries of the gospel. And we understand that the sacraments, particularly the Lord's Supper, is a sensible preaching of the Word of God. And because it is a preaching of the Word of God in which God speaks to our senses, we then infer from that 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 sacrament should only be administered in terms of the formal actions by the preaching elder. The ruling elders participate, though, in the distribution of the elements because they have a responsibility to fence the table, and as much as humanly can be accomplished to be sure that men are not eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Now, with respect to church membership, I disagree with the PCA Book of Church Order. I wish that we could be members both of the presbytery and of the local church. Now, again, in the uh, Continental Reform, the Dutch and German Reform traditions, the uh, teaching elder, the minister, is a member of the local church. I think that hinders presbytery oversight and church discipline. But, uh, but I would like this dual membership so that I can be accountable to the brothers at the presbytery level for my doctrine and morals, but also be a part of uh, the congregation uh, where my family is a member in the church where... I minister. So I hope, Samuel, that uh, this uh, answer helps. Again, please feel free to uh, follow up, and if you get a chance, um, look at Thornwell Volume 4. By the way, Th- uh, Thornwell has been reissued and is a, a set that's well worth having. Yeah, it's Solid Ground Publications that has re-released it, I believe. That's the one I have anyway. I don't think there's a new, another edition I don't think. think. Okay, so very good. So just to summarize, uh, Dr. Piper, just because I was listening, um, this has been a discussion that's actually been going on on Twitter as well, um, back and forth. But we got a question on that. Yeah, we do. We're going to come back to that (laughs) in a minute. But just so I just summarize, so it's an ordination to the function, not to the office. No, 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 we'll go that far. It's the office that has the function. 
Okay. So in a sense, he has the office of prophet. Right. But he also has the office of rule. Yeah, but what, what I'm saying is that if you have a ruling elder who's already been ordained, and then he, and like, take my situation. If I were to be ordained at, at the church in North Carolina, I'm already a ruling elder ordained. I would be ordained to the function of teaching elder. You're ordained to the office and function. And, okay, office and function. Yeah. All right. Just want to clarify, I was making right. some notes here. That's what um, we call it, two and a half office. It's not just function. We do, I think, anyway, that uh, there is an office uh, that's exclusive to uh, the preaching of the gospel. Uh, the difference with the radical or the regular three-office view is is that we want to see ruling elders pastoring involved in every level. So, for example, practically, and you'll, you'll see a difference in books of order. So the Orthodox Presbyterian that comes out of the three-office position uh, doesn't have the same necessity of ruling elders to make up a quorum yep. of a committee or a commission that we do in the PCA. One of the things I've loved about the PCA is this parity. So that every church commission, every church committee um, must have equal amount of ruling and teaching elders. And if you've got a, uh, a commission, that we had a commission to ordain a man last night. It was six men. You have to have at least two ruling elders and two teaching elders for a quorum of that commission to be present. So we see uh, the importance of ruling elder. I think that our view is a much higher view of, of ruling elder. And then we want ruling elders to be... You see, Hodge would say that passages like Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 only refer to the minister. And I think these refer to all elders, both teaching and ruling. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, anyway, good question, I, and I think this debate will continue, um, but it's good that we're thinking about these things and thinking through them uh, carefully as well. Since the social media issue come, came up, I'm going to skip the next question and jump right to that question. Um, it was written in anonymously, and the question is, with the increased use of social media comes the increase of debate on various topics over social media. Do you think it is possible to debate on Facebook, for instance? And if not, why not? Do you think this is a useful medium for this kind of debate? Now, I, I've been in classes with you, and I already know your answer to this, but um, I can't anyway. I convince you. I hope I do a better job. Well, you, I, I, I'm convinced. I don't think it can be done, but anyway, anon, anon. they're not asking me. They're, they're asking you. Yeah. Well, Anon, Anon, I am, uh, I'm sorry you, you couldn't put your name on this one. But anyway, it's probably one of my students. might even be Mr. Hill. Um, but it's a very important question. It's an issue about which you think that sometime in its lengthy history the modern church would learn the answer. Um, we all need to go back and reread Marshall McLuhan uh, on uh, the medium. The medium is the message. Or a later social uh, media critic, uh, Neil Postman, uh, amusing ourselves to death. What most uh, people, and it seems evangelicals above all, have been just refusing to see is that you cannot separate the content of the message from the media by which that message is delivered. Uh, Back up to our discussion about preaching. Preaching is verbal, public, authoritative proclamation. It is a distinctly revealed medium of communication. Appointed by God, it's foolish, and God intended it to be foolish because God works through it supernaturally. Mm-hmm. So preaching is not to be supplemented with overheads or visual aids or other things like that. 
So uh, my uh, friend Joel Niederhood, who for years was the radio voice of Back to God Hour and brilliant communicator on radio, when they moved into doing uh, television, because and I, when I ran the uh, doctor ministry program in California, I actually had him come different times and lecture on, uh, on media. When they began to do television programs, he conscientiously, self-consciously, sat at a table. He refused to preach on television because the medium, according to him, I think he's right on target, is manipulative. I, uh, this is background, but I think it's important for understanding this. Early on when we were in Houston, this would have been in, say, 1981 or so, and uh, there was a man named Bill Goth that would travel around and do these family life uh, conferences. And so somebody in our church wanted us to go. I wasn't a big fan of Bill Gothard, but they wanted us to go, and so my wife and I went. It was very interesting uh, because it's so big, the room we were in, that although he's up on front, he's also on uh, two television screens. And as they're coming to a break, and see, if you don't get outside of yourself, and this is how I, I watch things anyway, if you don't get outside of yourself and reflect on what's going on, then you miss these things. But as we're coming to a, quote, rest break, where all of the for sale things would go on sale, as he's wrapping it up, the uh, two pictures of him, or the one, I forget which it was, got larger and larger and larger, and it was very Manipulative. He came across warm, announcing now what was going on mm. in the back. And so rather than a static picture of him, uh, the medium was used to s- subtly to um, get people more receptive to the sales pitch. In my opinion, that's what happened. So we have, we have to analyze what each medium does to uh, communication. Social media is not, by its nature, conducive to serious, intelligent, civil conversation. It's soundbite conversation. Now, of course, that's most true for Twitter with 140 characters. But Facebook as well, you've got uh, minimum space. People don't spend time. I heard today in staff meeting, if you put a video on YouTube or Facebook for that's longer than two minutes, people don't listen to it. Got a very short attention span. It's very good for linking people to useful articles. It's very good for logistics, for getting announcements out about different meetings and things like that. And it's very good for a very simple type of uh, communication. But if I get a question from somebody on Facebook about anything serious or anything theological, I say, send me your email, or here's my email, write me, and we'll talk about this. Now, email is better, but again, we have to be careful because we, uh, you know, we have no body language involved with email, and what could have been a perfectly sincere, simple, affectionate remark can come across as cold, mm. arrogant, and dogmatic. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem with uh, electronic cold communication in that way. So uh, I think, and as well, uh, it's what I call, and if readers or listeners will excuse me, diarrhea of the fingers. 
<laughs> Some people run off at the mouth. Others run off at the fingers. Mm-hmm. And you get those fingers going. The brain is often unengaged and disastrous things. It's also, it's, it's, it's a powerful instrument for slander, for innuendos, for misinformation. But even the serious topics, debate on Facebook. I don't join any of these groups. Sometimes people put me in them. And if I just knew how to get out, I'd be better off, but I don't go in. Um, and I just think, I mean, really, the, the, the two or three sentence things that are said, I get so irritated, I want to say something mm-hmm. because of the profusion of ignorance. But I don't because all I would do is contribute to the profusion of uh, ignorance. So, no, I do not think it's possible to debate on Facebook. I encourage Christians not to have uh, groups and things like that, but write articles and uh, write a serious article, reflect on it, pray over it, go back to it the next day, edit it. If you get it polished sufficiently well, then you put it someplace on a website or a blog, and then you send out a Twitter and a Facebook that uh, I've written this article it's there. If you want to interact with me about this article, then here is – even the comment sections on articles are not that useful. So I say, here's my email. I'd be glad to uh, hook up with you and uh, talk about it. Hmm. Well, I've heard you talk about this in class, of course, and um, obviously there's a wide – there's a variety of opinions on this. I agree with you in principle, um, though I think there are times when – uh, a response or two is needed to correct. But, again, serious yeah. debate, probably not. That's true. Solomon says, answer, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. We have to know at what time to do that. I'm just not going to invest the time and energy. Well, that's, and that was going to be my next uh, statement. Yeah, I, I, I've often seen on, on Facebook especially, and, and, I, and I've commented probably unwisely, um, in my own status uh, post about the number of pastors I see posting on Facebook on a regular basis. Now, I, I sometimes wonder how they have the time. I, I don't, I'm just a seminary student who's helping a church in North Carolina and do it, and I don't know, I don't have the time, and, and yet I still find myself drawn to it. I get it, but it just seems to me to be a big waste of time. It, Facebook's a time sucker, as I've heard people mention often. So um, I guess you got to evaluate yourself. Um, I, I try not to get in debates on Facebook. I sometimes do because that's my personality. I get sucked into it and then get out of it. I run away screaming at myself over it. But uh, it's a good question um, and one that's going to continue probably. And I uh, do know who asked the question. Yeah, I can tell from my text here. Oh, you do know who asked the question. I would love, well, off air, you can tell me who you think asked the question. You don't want me to ask you on air for sure. Because I absolutely know who asked the question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, we're going to move on now before somebody gets in trouble. Then it'll probably be me. I don't know why you couldn't put your name on. I think it's a great question. Well, it was my question um, because I've heard you mention it on. in class, and um, this next one yours too. But go back to the and, blog and, first. Well, no, it came. It, it, and the reason the the genesis of the question, and, and this is this is great. This is the kind of thing I like to see more on faith and practice. A little more back and forth on these things, but and not necessarily in agreement. But the genesis of this was just the other night. 
um, in a group that I'm in that I actually administrate, and it's not a debate group. It's by by nature, it's not a debate group. It's a it's a it's a it's a clearinghouse really of articles and information and other sorts of resources on the Sabbath day, on the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's day, and that's the name of the group. And a gentleman came in. He was approved to be in the group. We didn't know anything about him, and um, he launched this full-on attack against the Westminster standards position on the Lord's Day, said we're wrong, and he's holding to the Bible, and we're all looney tunes, basically, because we only believe in the confession, and, and, and some of the individuals in the group started to interact with him in this debate back and forth, and it was, going, it was going nowhere, absolutely nowhere. And so one of the other administrators, who's a graduate of this seminary, uh, finally just put an end to the whole thing entirely, and, um, and then wrote this really good uh, ref- uh, very good uh, st- a post, a sticky post that stays at the top of our group that says this is not the forum for debate. This is our position. This is what we hold to. And we only have this for information to help edify one another on these matters as we find resources on the Internet. See, I think that's a valuable that, that's use a, that's of Facebook. Link. I agree. Yeah, I have v- no problem. valuable use. But, but debate it, it's utterly pointless. Um, people pick and choose what they're going to respond to. Well, I see pictures of my grandchildren, too. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I'm still right, waiting for those pictures, by the way, for from your example, wife. For example, the other day, uh, somebody uh, put to me, and I have sent it around the world, uh, about this pastor in Germany who is preaching the gospel. He's been investigated for hate speech. He's been uh, the Bremen, where he, he pastors in Bremen, the parliament's passed a resolution against him. Seventy state church pastors have mm. demonstrated against mm. him because he says 80% of the ministers in the state church are unregenerate. <laughs> He's very humble. Mm. He was asked, well, you know, do you feel like, you know, getting 10,000 emails of support and things like that? He says, well, yeah. He said, you know, I, Satan's there on my shoulder telling me how great I am and all that. And he says, and that is just a bunch of malarkey. He said, I need to be a faithful, humble servant. Mm. He's got mm-hmm. really impressed. I'd love to meet him. I'm going to try to meet him. But anyway, then out of that, because there was a picture posted in the interview, mm. I saw he's at St. Martin's Church in Bremen, where Joachim Neander, a German Reformed pastor, wrote this really great hymn that I love and always forget the title of it. But anyway, you can look it up in the New Trinity Hymnal, Neander. So then that was, say, a Wednesday or a Thursday. Now, this is a good thing about Facebook. So I'm then, I went out with my wife. We were in an antique uh, store, just walking around in the various stalls, and I look up on the wall, and there's a print of that church in Bremen. <laughs> I would not have known it. I would have looked at it twice. It's mm-hmm. a, it was a hand-pulled lithograph. And so now it sits on the mantle of my home. Hmm. As reminded to me both of the heritage of that church, but also to pray for that pastor. So, yeah, there are lots of good things in Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I use it for prayer requests and announcements and stuff like that. Well, he mentioned the Trinity Hymnal, so I, I happen to have a copy of it here, and, and I, I have no idea which one it is because there's like one, two, three, four, five, six different hymns. Yeah. He was a fairly prolific hymn writer, but unfortunately you're into composers and not authors. Well, well, Composer yeah. does the music. I was music. doing it quickly. You've been in the worship I course. was doing it quickly. Composers do the, uh, the music and authors write the words. So if you go over to author, there's only two. And I think it's 53. This is a good lesson for Bill. And, I, and my Trinity hymnal is blue, by the way, not red. 
Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Yeah, that's a great Oh, my one. soul, praise him, for yeah. he is thy health and salvation. And by the way, listeners, that was translated by uh, Catherine Winkworth, hmm. a Victorian British lady who learned German. And look up any hymn translated by Catherine Winkworth, and you're going to find a glorious, uh, biblically faithful hymn. Hmm. Excellent. Well, there you go. Um, let the debate rage. It'll probably rage on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> as well, to whether or not we should debate on Facebook. Then now, the next rage, one is, yeah. is, 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 um, get me in lots of trouble. Well, I would call this a, 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 a somewhat controversial question. Um, and, and the question is, there are a number of blogs out there and, and anybody who's on the internet knows that this is a fact. Um, everybody has a blog. It seems a number of them are written by women who are blogging on theological topics. Is this useful or wise? And, and maybe even, yeah. Well, on, anon, anon, again, knew my position, and all he's doing is getting me in trouble. So um, let me take you to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul is dealing with the church at prayer and worship. He deals with men, and then he lengthy section devoted to women. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Mm -hmm. So I think what we see there at the last place is the ordinary role of a woman is to be wife and mother. Now, that's not all women. That's not God's plan for all women. But it's the advance of the church through her uh, rearing of children and domestic skills. But the thing I want to point out here is... Women are not to be teachers of men in any kind of uh, authoritative or formal fashion. Now, I immediately hear, what about Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila? Well, informal is very different. Uh, they brought Apollos into their home, and they had a conversation. When my wife and I have friends at the house, our students over, we're having a conversation, uh, we're back and forth. I would want her to express her insights and opinion. They're often very good and useful. And so uh, the informal conversation is one thing. But uh, the, uh, any kind of uh, putting oneself into a position of being a theological instructor, I think, is a very dangerous place for a woman to be. Now, and I want to interrupt you real quick because you've made a couple – you used a couple terms that I, I just want to clarify. All right. Um, Informal conversation, informal use. Well, how would you do, how so, would you define that? I explain that. I said well, we're so sitting around the house talking. Well, someone might someone might say, "Well, blogs are informal." Well, I'm getting there. Okay, I'm laying a foundation. Very Thank good. you for getting that. But no, I'm laying a foundation. All right, so uh, we come then to a woman blogging on theological topics, and um, that means she's put herself into a position of, for the most part, being an uh, unvetted uh, theological instructor. Unvetted, I think, is very important. I don't think any layperson, man or woman, so I'll be an equal opportunity offender, should <laughs> be uh, blogging on teaching theology on the Bible or tell me what they think about theology if their site is not approved by a session. Mm -hmm. We've got way too many self-appointed teachers, male and female. 
So there's the first thing. should be under a session. And then the second thing is, it really, I think, is a woman going beyond her calling. If a woman teaches a Bible study in the church, she, has, she should have material, even if she's written that material, that it's approved by the session and uh, vetted in that fashion. And, but Paul tells us particularly what he wants a woman to be instructing other women, uh, and that is in Titus, uh, where he says he wants them to teach other women, older and younger. Now, that doesn't have to be chronologically older and younger. It can be uh, spiritually older. Uh, likewise, reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And so uh, what Paul says, the primary focus of female instruction is to be for female piety, particularly domestic piety. Now, women need to be discipled or mentored by women. If a woman is converted, you don't want a, uh, a man in the church mm-hmm. uh, mentoring her. You either put her in a group or you put her with a couple or with another woman. So there's surely roles. And again, my discipleship book has been used by women um, uh, mentoring women. Um, so now, when we start belonging, it seems to me that if we take Titus 2 as our pattern, uh, if a woman, and I see these, if she's blogging about um, helpful hints for uh, running a household, for here's some things that we do with the children on the Lord's Day, you know, here are some hints, uh, or even encouraging other women to get balanced and don't get overly uh, uh, stressed out on the cleanliness are overly stressed, unstressed on the children or <laughs> are just letting everything go chaotic. Uh, there's lots of things that a woman could blog that's in this area. And so that I, I still think she should be under at least her husband in these domestic things, preferably a session. But once it gets into theological discussions or uh, exegetical issues, uh, I am of the opinion that a woman should not do that. Yep. Well, I am of the same opinion. Just so, well, I, just so we are not in, uh, creating any controversy here. Uh, and and in, in the interest of full disclosure, I actually posted uh, uh, that question on Facebook of all places <laughs> um, at one time, and um, well, the fallout was uh, pretty. Um, well, I can imagine pre- what this is going to get. Pretty rough. But that's okay. Uh, but um, you know, um, I was nice. Well, I, I, I think the issue is, is relevant for our time. Um, anybody with a keyboard and a computer now can, and can just toss their opinions out there in any way, shape, or form with no, uh, no accountability and no consequence in general. Um, and I think your, your comments are wise because if, there, if, if any man uh, blogs a theological issue – still is under the authority of the session and their church as a member of that church, then there's accountability there, and the session should be militant, or not militant, vigilant as to assessing those kinds of things. I've seen great damage come from people who are basically loose cannons, even, and and they're men doing these things. Um, 
So, yes, I mean, I, I, one of the blogs that you're probably thinking about uh, is a, a wife of a graduate of the seminary who has an excellent blog that is written towards women about various matters of the home, and it's an outstanding blog. I've read it. It's fantastic. And knowing the husband, I'm sure he reads it before it goes forward. So um, there, is, there is a place for it. But theological issues, I get real squeamish when I see that. Um, and, and I could go even further. Uh, how about women uh, co-hosting podcasts of theological nature? You put me on the Janet Melford show. Well, Janet Mefford, I don't think, is commenting on theological issues necessarily. Just social. She has, yeah, but she has guests on who do comment. All right. But anyway. Okay, we'll, we'll move on before we get in further trouble and, and my email inbox blows up. But I, uh, anyway, I'm not leaving my email and, on this In the program. future, you people send in more questions so that Anon won't have to do I actually had some as well, but he, he hogged up all the time, so. I was just trying to make sure that we had a program. We got it. So we only have a few minutes left now. So let's get this last. Actually, one. we have a, we have eleven minutes left. Um, so we have plenty of time to answer this next question, <laughs> which should be answered pretty quickly. Um, Why don't you give some advertisements first? Advertisements. Okay. Well, very good. I'll do that. Um, we do have a Facebook page. <laughs> The Greenville Seminary does have a Facebook page, um, and it's generally, and it's not a debate page. It's generally used for announcements. But if you want to look us up there, um, Greenville Seminary, GPTS, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at GPTS Seminary, GPTS, GPT Seminary. Make sure I get that correct. Um, Dr. Piper also has a Twitter. <laughs> we just hammered social media, and now we're talking about no, how I we say have all it these has its purposes. It's good. It does. Tell them my mustache also has a Twitter well, account. Well, I don't even know which one that is, and I would really love to know who the one who made that, but I think I do know, but I'm not sure. But be that as it may, Dr. Piper has a, a Twitter account. It's uh, J. Piper Jr., uh, I have one. Uh, most people know this. It's W. M. Hill Jr. William Hill Jr. Um, um, on Twitter. I'm on Facebook as well. Um, so is Dr. Piper. He's already mentioned that. But uh, but more importantly, um, Greenville Seminary does have a web page. Um, it's gpts.edu. If you have more information about want to find out more information about the seminary. You can go there um, and, um, and and get that information. If you have specific questions, you can write us in, write to the seminary at info at uh, gpts.edu, and uh, you'll get a pretty quick response uh, to just about any question that uh, that you have. Um, Additionally, uh, the, web, the, the podcast has a website, confessingourhope.com. It's been redesigned and a little easier to use, I think, now um, on, on um, online. What are you doing over there? That's you. It, it's not me. You, you, it, I keep getting pop-ups that you're following me on Twitter. You're already following me on Twitter. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Stop playing with your phone on the program. <laughs> You're starting to sound like Mike and Mike. Yeah, we're having a little bit of fun today. It's okay. It's good to have fun sometimes. Always. Um, but that's the the the, the social advertisements. Um, but we do have time, so why don't you tell the listeners uh, we're we're getting close. I mean, it's it's just a few months out. Our theology conference is right around the corner. Why don't you tell the listeners the topic and the general uh, information for the for the Thank you, conference. Bill. First full week of August, I think it's the 8th, 9th, and 10th, is our annual conference. And this year it is on um, marriage, family, and sexuality. Hmm. We've got some very good positive messages on the purpose of marriage, 
husband-wife relationship, children, intimacy in marriage. Joel Beakey's done some really good work in this area. He'll be speaking on that. Rick Phillips, who's with his wife, written on dating and courtship, is going to give an address on dating and courtship. Mm-hmm. Dr. Shaw is going to do a message on family worship. Uh, and then we're going to address some of the topics. Uh, Kevin Bacchus is going to do uh, a section dealing with addiction to pornography. We've got a speaker from um, Creation Ministries International that's going to be dealing with the whole sexuality, homosexual, transgender uh, issues. And then we always want to do something uh, historical. Uh, Ryan McGraw is also an Owen anniversary, John Owen, and so Ryan's going to do a very popular lecture on Owen and his theology. So it's going to be a dynamite conference. It's right on target, really important in this day and age. So I encourage um, all of you to uh, come and join us for that week. Yep, it's going to be a great great conference. So, um, again, gpts.edu, more information will be coming out there about the conference as, as in, in days uh, days ahead. In fact, the brochure will soon be posted on the website. Yep, yep, we just talked about that today. So, okay, last question of the day. It's not a complicated one, um, but it's a question nonetheless. Um, translations to the Bible. Um, in your opinion, what is the best translation of the Bible, and why? What translation do you currently use? All right, very good. Well, most people, I would say that uh, there's six translations that uh, serious Christians are going to use. The King James, and there are the King James-only people. The New International Version. The English Standard Version. The uh, English Standard Version. He said that. That's two times. I don't think so. The King James, the New King James, the NIV, the English Standard Version, and the New American Standard Version. So there's five. Now, um, within that list, many of us love the King James. I was converted under the King James. Mm -hmm. That tells you how old, at least gives you an idea of how ancient I am. And it is beautiful. But I have great difficulty with the King James-only approach to Bible translation because Mm -hmm. the Confession of Faith says the Bible is to be in the Vulgar, the everyday language of the common people. And so I think it's a good Bible to consult and to have and to read, but I don't think it is the regular study Bible that one should use or from what uh, one should preach. Out of the list, I think the New International Version is the worst in the list. It um, is uh, the philosophy of translation is called dynamic equivalent, and it often is uh, it's the most interpretive of any of the translations. And even though they were very good Reformation men on the translation committee, it was also a committee a translation by committee, and so even at times there, better translations didn't uh, get in. Personally. I'm not keen on the New King James. I just think it doesn't read well. And it was basically just kind of an updating of the language of the King James. Now, what I like about the New King James is the textual basis. Uh, and that is, it, it, well, it's, it's the Texas uh, Receptus, which was the text that Erasmus put together, and that was the basis of the King James text. I, I'm not a Texas Receptus person, but the Texas Receptus is the most reflective text of what's called the majority text. And that's the text that's been used most consistently um, 
in the church since uh, the time probably of Chrysostom in, uh, in Constantinople. Uh, and so I am a majority text person. Now, the two most popular ones today, I think, are the English Standard Version, which probably is the most popular, at least in, the, in our Reformed denominations, and the New American Standard Version, which has a broader popularity in uh, the more serious evangelical Bible churches and things like that as well. Comparing the two, I find that the English Standard Version is somewhere in between the New American Standard Version and the uh, NIV. So I think it takes liberties that I wish, interpretive liberties that I wish it didn't take. The other thing about it is that it, because it is a revision of the Revised Standard Version, which was done by liberals, now the ESV is done by conservatives, but it tends for its textual basis to opt for the uh, more obscure critical text. So it'll over the, the Hebrew, main Hebrew text is called the Masoretic text. That's a 10th century text. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, it's very consistent with what we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But th- they opt for that. And uh, then the uh, other textual variants that they will go for. So I've ended up with the New American Standard Version, which I prefer because it is the most literal of the English translations. And I think, particularly in the 1995 version, which got rid of the, the archaic these and thous and such as that, that it reads very well. If, if one just works at reading it, it's not wooden. You can read it very uh, interestingly, I think, if, if one just tries mm. to, uh, to do that. So I like it because now it's not majority text, but the nice thing about it is when it departs from the majority text, it usually gives a footnote mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. tells you. The ESV doesn't always do that. So, um, And then I work actually with the Greek and the Hebrew, so I'm also in the majority text, and so I'll know automatically the difference. But I've used it for years. I recommend it. I think for Bible study, there's just no version better. Now, the old American Standard Version is also very good. It has the problem of, of the archaic language, more so even 1901, than what we have in the New American Standard Version. I talked to the, the big problem with the NASV is that second word, American. If they would simply get smart and change that, because I talked to friends in Britain, for example, that use the English Standard Version, and they'll prefer the New American Standard Version. It's like, we can't use that in the pulpit, because... It's American. And so what we really need then is a, a New American Standard Version that is called uh, the... Um, new Standard Version? New Standard Version, or the English <laughs> Version. Now, the other thing that people say with respect to the King James is that it's the authorized version. Well, it is authorized, but not by a church. It was authorized by a king. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he did it to get rid of the Puritan Bible, which was a good translation, the Geneva Bible, but it was the first study Bible. It had all these Puritan study notes in it. So um, so that's why I like the New American Standard best. But any of the New American Standard, the ESV, uh, or the New King James, uh, find one of those that you're most comfortable with and uh, use it. But use all three. I use all three in my preparation. Yep. And the King James. Someone, someone once said the best translation is the one you're, the one you read. <laughs> How good that is. And and uh, but be that as it may, um, it probably should the NIV. I know a lot of people like it, but um, it to me is um, I agree with Doctor Pipe. I think it's just uh, takes liberties where it shouldn't, and um, better to read the New King James if you're going to have to choose um, between the three top ones. 
um, over the NIV. Well, anyway, that that wraps up the broadcast for today. As far as the live side, we're probably going to carry over a little bit in the recording. But I do want to remind everybody that if you have questions for us, and if this broadcast didn't generate a few <laughs> a few response questions, um, I don't know what else to do to make that happen. But um, Write in to the program. Um, you can write in simply at confessingourhope.com. The form is there. It's very easy. I don't ask any uh, personal information about you. Just send in the question, your name, uh, city, state, and um, and send it in, and uh, we will deal with it on the program. If you do write in and uh, we use your, pro- uh, your question on the air, you will get $10. That's 10 real dollars uh, to the Banner of Truth uh, online store uh, to use as a credit to uh, buy whatever you like. Um, we used to give out books specific, uh, but we changed that policy because we felt like this would put give people the opportunity to buy what they want. And um, so, and and we have great confidence in the Banner of Truth uh, store. It's a fantastic uh, book publication uh, uh, source, and we highly recommend it here at the seminary. One of our graduates, in fact, is the general manager of the American, uh, the American side of the uh, the the equation. So, um, so utilize them even if you don't send in pro- any questions here. Buy your books there. Um, they 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 put out great great material. Um, uh, for you. So send your question in confessingourhope.com. There's the, the form is there. If you want to send it in on Twitter, um, that, that's fine. If you do use the hashtag GPTSFP and I will get it uh, guaranteed because I have, I follow that hashtag. So I will get it um, through that uh, process as well. You can also send questions in on Facebook. If we post the event ahead of time, um, I have not been very good at that. I just did it this time. So, um, but but you can send in uh, your question on Facebook. But the preferred way is to use the form on the website. So um, that pretty much wraps that up or covers it completely. Um, what's coming up on the program? I, I, I really don't know. Um, <laughs> that's the sad part. <laughs> you didn't need to say that. Um, but uh, go to the website. There, information is all there. All the, bas- uh, the, the past programs, broadcasts are available uh, to listen to. Uh, there on the website in the mobile app you can get them all in addition to dr piper's chapel sermons and we now have them in video as well and so uh either way audio video you have them right there at your fingertips on your phone so utilize those resources so we do appreciate all the listeners the ones that send in questions of course uh we thank you for that and um i have nothing more to say (laughs) how about that is that amazing or what it's good. All right. Well, until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. Mm-hmm.